Hey, thanks so much for listening to this message. My name is Jason, and I'm one of the ministers here at the Madison Church of Christ. It's our hope and prayer that the teaching you hear today will bless your life and draw you closer to God. If you're ever in the Madison area, we'd love for you to stop by and study the Bible with us on Sundays at 5 p.m. or Wednesdays at 7 p.m. If you have questions about the Bible or want to know more about the Madison Church, you can find us online at madisonchurch.org. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast as well as our sermons podcast, Madison Church of Christ Sermons. Thanks again for stopping by. I hope this study is a blessing to you. Great motivator, great organizer. He just, uh, he was one of those guys that you just, you hated to see move on to another place. And yet I know he's doing an unbelievable job there. He and Allison are with us tonight, and they're two little ones. Y'all, Ava is almost five years old, hard to believe. And then Camden is six months. Six months. So six months old. And they are back with us tonight. It just feels like a homecoming. We're thankful to have them with us. And I know Brian will do a great, great job tonight. We love you, brother. Thank you for coming our way. Man, Brandon, you were doing so good there. You could have kept going. Like, I may listen to that recording every morning to feel good about myself. Yeah. <laughs> That was great. I was telling Brandon after dinner tonight that this is kind of weird for me. This is my first time to attend Adult Summer Series here at Madison. So I was here for eight years, and this is a new experience for me uh, to be here in the auditorium with you guys on a Wednesday night. Uh, We are so glad to be back here. On the way up here and driving through town to go eat, I felt like I had a sense of what Paul felt sometimes when he was writing to some of the churches he had visited with, and he had such a deep love for them. And even though he wasn't with them anymore, he always heard uh, he, and he was encouraged by the good reports that he would hear, and he would spend a lot of time in prayer with them. And I feel that same way about you. Uh, through social media and through friendships, uh, I still get to hear many of the good things God is doing through you, and that's an encouragement to me and my family. And we just love you guys so much. And you guys are in our prayers, and we love what you guys are doing uh, for the Lord. Tonight we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, so if you want to go ahead and turn your Bibles there, that's where we're going to camp out most of the time. Tonight we're going to talk about a topic that many of you think probably, you know what, I, I know this topic, I can kind of check out, but I think once we dive into this, hopefully you'll be, you'll be challenged by this, you'll be reminded of things that you've been taught previously, but tonight we're really going to look at the idea of what can we do to influence God's presence here on earth. Uh, there's going to be connection between how we function as a group and God's presence uh, with us. So we're going to be looking at 1 John. If you've never read through 1 John, I would really encourage you to do it. I think it's a wonderful letter. Like, it's high on the list of books that I love. Um, You're going to see a little bit of themes in a minute of why I love them. But if you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so. It's not a super long read uh, for you to be able to read through it and enjoy it. Uh, There's a little bit of a background that we need to look at, though, uh, for this. One is there were opponents, and we're getting one side of the conversation here, because we get the letter from John writing to them, encouraging them, encountering some of the things that they were hearing, uh, so we can piece together a little bit of what those Christians are facing. But you have some opponents there who are kind of saying, hey, we have extra knowledge. Like, we've experienced stuff, and we know things, and you guys don't have that, so the Christians there are kind of doubting themselves, doubting what they've been taught and what they've learned in the past, Uh, You also have this idea that all matter is evil and only the spirit is good. So there's other things that are developing there. And those are kind of in the background all the way through this letter. And it's going to have an impact on John's audience. Think for a moment what that impact would be. Uh, I know this is a large room, so you don't have to say it out loud, but just act like we're talking. Uh, So answer it in your head. What do you think these ideas would have an impact on John's audience? If somebody was coming to you and saying, hey, I have this extra knowledge that you haven't been taught 
it would cause a lot of doubts in my faith that would cause me to feel inferior uh, to them. I went through the book, and there's going to be two different slides here. I know you can't read it. Like, it's not up there. Don't don't think I'm crazy. Like, okay, we're going to read from that tonight. Uh, But what you're going to see is a repetitiveness of a lot of themes. So in red is going to be any ideas associated with sin. Um, And yellow is going to be knowledge or that you can know. Um, Pink's going to be love. Uh, The dark blue is abide, and the light blue is eternal life. So you're going to see, just glancing up there in the first couple chapters, repetitive themes going through here. Uh, In the next couple ones, you see that again. So it kind of switches a little bit there. You're going to see a lot of love here in the middle of the book in pink there, where he's all through this letter is trying to reinforce to them that you can know Jesus Christ, that you can know that you have eternal life in Jesus Christ, that you can know these things, and because of that, your life should function in a certain way. And mainly, one of those principal things being love. But also, how you correspond with sin as well, which we're not going to dive into that tonight. But if you read through here, that's kind of another main theme uh, that you're going to see that's going on in the background. Um, Let me ask you this. Uh, We're looking at John. um, And you know, I don't I don't preach, so I'm used to like Bible classes where we can talk and stuff like that. So this may not work, but I'm going to ask a question anyways. what do you guys think of when you think of John, the Apostle John? You can just shout it out. All right, yeah, a friend of Jesus, I think I heard. Somebody said love. All right, yeah, a son, son of thunder. If you think of, in your mind, I want you to think of top three things maybe that you could, if you could go back in time and witness in Jesus' life, what would be those three events? Just, you don't have to answer that out loud. Just think about it for a minute. If you could go back in time and you could witness three events, this was like a magic show. I could probably predict that John was at your events. All right, he is one of the inner three of Jesus. Pretty much everything that I can think of, oh, I would love to have been there, John was there. You think of like the transfiguration, you think of the garden, you think of the cross where he looks down and says, ask him to take care of his mother. Like, whoa, that's a big, that's a big job. Like if I think of, okay, I'm gonna ask somebody else to take care of my mom. Mom, if you're watching this, I love you a lot. I would give you somebody very responsible. But if I was asking somebody, hey, I want you to, to look after my mom, like, there's a deep love and friendship there. So when we look at this letter from John, I want us to, to realize who we're also listening to. Obviously, you got the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but you have somebody that was very, very close with Jesus, of what it meant to be one of his followers, what it meant uh, when Jesus taught, hey, this is what I want it to look like for my followers to live, and this is how they should function. John, I would rank up there, people I want to hear from, is him. So when we sit back and we we look through this text, keep that in mind, uh, the perspective that we have here. All right, so let's jump in. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 4, uh, 7 and 8. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. All right, this is one of those passages where you're going to see a lot of pink if you went back to that that graphic earlier. Um, Love is a repetitive thing in John, especially here. And he says, beloved. He's got a deep love for them. A lot of times he uses that word when he really wants them to pay attention to something. He says, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Born of God here, we see this idea here. Uh, You also have John with the Gospel of John. You think of John chapter 3 with Nicodemus. That's going to be another occurrence where he uses that. If you ever do a study of like the Gospel of John and and 1 John, that's an interesting study of common themes and and things that he repeats. 
And this is one of those there, that born of God, that idea of, obviously that's not the physical birth. Like we're talking about one that has been baptized into Christ through the Spirit. Like it's that type of being born of God. Not just anybody in the world, but this is a follower of Christ uh, that he's talking about. So what does it mean uh, that God is love and love comes from God? Like I would say verse 9 and 10 is going to describe this to a fuller sense uh, when we jump down to this. So let's look at uh, verse 9. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. All right, this to me makes perfect sense so far. All right, when I think of who Jesus is, one of the purposes of why he came into earth, it was, display, it was to display to us who God was. Like God became flesh. You think of how the Gospel of John starts. Uh, in the beginning of the Word, and the Word was with God, and then farther down he's going to talk about the Word becoming flesh. Like this is a key theme uh, for John that he focuses on. And the point of this is not just that Jesus came to earth, but he came to earth for a certain purpose. And what does it say there in the text? He came to earth so that what could occur? Yeah, so that we might be able to live through him. In John chapter 17, and I love this, this chapter looking at the things Jesus cared about. It said, And when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority all, over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that you know uh, the, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's worth pausing on. Worth pausing to recognize that the purpose of why Jesus come, came to earth, and I know you know this, but it's worth being reminded of this so that we could have eternal life through him that we can have that relationship with him, that we can have that salvation, that forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. Like he recognizes why he was here. He's talking to God of what he hopes for all of his believers is that they can have eternal life in him. And then in verse 10, he says, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So I ask this question to you, and this is love. Do we understand love? Think about that for a moment. I would say our gut reaction is be like, oh yeah, I know love, like John 3, 16, God's love of the world. Like that's, a, that's something I learned as a child if you grew up going to church. If you didn't grow up going to church, you still understand that concept. Like we're surrounded by loves and ideas of what love may be. If I had a guess, I assume someone in here argued with their spouse on the way uh, to our study tonight. Husbands, you were probably being selfish. I thought maybe I'd get an amen from somebody there. Would have been awkward, but uh, thought maybe so. Um, but most likely there was some argument that occurred. Maybe it wasn't tonight. Maybe it was earlier in the week, the week before. But I'm sure we've acted selfishly, caused an issue where we didn't love somebody. I did a quick stat on some things. Um, and it said 25% of all children in the U.S., live in single-parent homes. Now, obviously, some of that stat would be due to death, uh, but the majority of that um, is, is not. The average length of marriage in the U.S. is... Think of a number before I actually say this. What do you think the average length in America is for marriage? Babe, we're above average, by the way, wherever you are. Uh, we're past this. Uh, it's 8.2 years. I think it, it could be outdated. I think this came from 2020, but still, soon enough. 8.2 years is the average length of a marriage. 
Like in marriage in our society, obviously as the, at the core of what love is, like of what our understanding of it, how we can experience and express love and, and have a love relationship with somebody. I was playing a game with Ava the other day, and it was a game of would you rather, all right? And we were like throwing out like just crazy stuff, like would you rather do this, this, or this? And she wanted to go, and she said, Dad, would you rather marry Mommy or go to Disney World? <laughs> and she thought she had me. Like, she, like, I could tell she was, like, smiling back there, and I was like, mm, I paused too long. Husbands, if you play that game, don't pause. Like, but I was trying to be funny, and I, I paused or whatever, and she was like, oh, man, this is a good one. And I was like, oh, I, I would marry your Mommy. And she was like, we were rotating, and she was like, oh, I, I want to go again. She was like, Dad, would you marry mommy or go to Disney World with no lines? <laughs> like, in her mind, she was like, I'm, I'm on, I'm right there. Like, I almost got him. And then I was like, no, I would, I would marry your mommy. And then, like, after this, we, like, changed the subject. She, she had one more. She was like, okay, this is it. Like, would you marry mommy or would you rotate going to Disney World to the beach and you don't have to spend any money every other week. You can just go back and forth. And I was like, and no lines? And she was like, no lines. And I was like, mm, I would still marry your mommy. <laughs> like, and her mind was blown. Like, um, she was like, Man, I can't believe that. You know, like, I know she, what she's choosing if I was the other option. Like, uh, but, and that's silly and things like that. But if we look at this verse uh, back in, oh, oh, wrong way. There we go. Clickers are new. Anyways, it says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And my question is, are there's not one and the same? Like, why make a separation of those two? Like, why not just say love? Like, hey, I want you to love. Not that we have, not our love for God, but he's defining love and he's using what he has done to define love. And to me, those are not the same. Like, I don't know about you, but for me, the love that I show God and that, that I've demonstrated in my life, like, is not the love that he has demonstrated to me. It is not the love that I've demonstrated to my wife, even though I love her very much. It is, I am not perfect. It is not the love that I've demonstrated to my children or anyone else on earth. It is not that type of love. And I think, if I'm honest with myself, and probably you as well, I think I'm closer to probably understanding love. I feel like I'm probably more like Ava than I am like God in his love for me. Like, she thinks she understands love. Every day she tells me that she loves me, and I, I believe her, like she does. But, like, obviously there's strings attached to that love, <laughs> like, if she's offered a better option. But for us, like, we struggle to love. Like, we think we love, and there's people in this room that, that we love, but love is hard. Like, loving other people is difficult because we mess up and we bring baggage and we hurt people and we say things we don't mean to and we regret later and we make mistakes, and loving people is hard. And yet, we get to call God Father, somebody who promises to always be there for us. Somebody who, as we're going to see when he talks about sending Jesus, was not, oh, I sent Jesus because I know that you're committed to me and you've loved me, but no, sent Jesus while we were still sinners. 
So in Jesus, even though I didn't deserve it, even though he knew that I was going to abandon him and turn my back on him and struggle and wrestle with this concept of what it means to love him and follow him, and it's not an equal relationship between us. So as we jump into this text, I want us to just pause for a moment and say, you know what? Maybe I don't know love like I should. Or maybe I'm not expressing love like I should. And take a moment just to reflect and say, okay, God, what does it look like to love? What does it mean to love? What does it mean to be a group of believers who love one another? So do we love? Do we understand love? If I understand God's love, I think I would deny myself and pick up my cross more often. And what I mean by that is I think I would forgive my brothers and sisters or show mercy more or give people the benefit of the doubt. If I understood God's love like he does, I think I would desire to dwell in his presence more, to just sit with him and to think about him and, and to reflect on his goodness. I, th- I think if I understood God's love like he does, I think gratitude and worship would come naturally more often. I think I would be able to speak proudly and often of Jesus more. I think I would identify myself more fully and firstly as a Christian. If I understood God's love the way that he understands it, I think I would mourn sin more often than I do. In my life, in our community, in my brothers and sisters, and throughout the world. I think I would lose sleep more often over somebody's soul if I understood God's love the way that he understands love. So it is in my moments of distractions and forgetfulness and when I place things in my life that are, I think are important today but I know upon my death will not be important at all that I need you. That I need the church, that I need God's people to be there to remind me, to love me, to build me up because we fall short. In our key passage that we're going to see tonight, this is what it's going to explore when we get there. This concept of experiencing God's love through one another. God's love for us, it's so powerful. When I was preparing this lesson, I remembered back to a joint retreat, and if you were with us, uh, this will, I'm sure, will be a vivid memory of yours as well, but when we did the sounds of the cross. And I still remember going through that and the emotions when it's attached to it, and anytime I hear the song, Beautiful Lamb of God, like, I go back to that moment and I can, I, I'm, I'm there. To the emotions, to the thought process, and being fully immersed into the, the narrative of Jesus' life and what he suffered through, and the love that he had for us. And I pray each week when we take the Lord's Supper that we can at least get a glimpse of remembering how important and how much God loves us when we remember that he came and he died for us. In Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's so beautiful. That's so powerful. And I know mentally we understand that and mentally we know that, but sometimes we struggle to emotionally understand it and emotionally be moved and lived by that concept. In Romans chapter 8, it's a powerful verse, and we're going to read multiple verses here because I think it's worth our time. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give graciously, or give also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Is God who justifies? 
who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, shall trip, would somebody mind grabbing me some water? <laughs> Sorry. Uh, my mouth's getting dry. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, knowing all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you spent time reading scripture and you've read through the New Testament, I'm sure this is one of those passages that jumped out to you. I think it's one of those that people mark and underline and try to memorize because of the reminder of how much God values us, how much God cares about us, and how much we can have victory uh, through him. So back to our text. In verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The invisibility of God is addressed multiple times in the fourth gospel. I'm going to read off a couple of these to you. And John, you know, is the writer of both of these. In John chapter 1, verse 18, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And the Father, and then later on in John chapter 5, verse 37 uh, through 40, it says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, this form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one who is sent. Um, you have searched the scriptures because you think that in him or in them you have eternal life, and it is there and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And then in John chapter 6, uh, starting verse 45 through 48, it reads, As it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Thank you so much, Brandon. Halftime break. Not that anyone has ever seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Now, I know you didn't have these texts in front of you, but maybe you caught the connection. In each one of these passages, the invisibility of God is tied to whom? Anybody catch it? It's tied to Jesus. Jesus saying, you have never seen God, you have never heard God, but you've seen me. Or the scriptures, you, you know, you can't see God, but the scriptures testify about me. In each one of those, it's Jesus that is the manifestation of God. Like he's our source. He's the one that we know that we can look at Jesus and we can learn who God is. All right, so in each time you see that. Now, that makes sense. Like in Colossians chapter one, this is another passage that I love, starting verse 13. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Notice this, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Like, to me, one of the beautiful things about the Gospels and the testimony of Jesus' life is that we get a glimpse into who God is. Like, we don't have to wonder, oh, what would it be like if God was human and he walked the streets? What, how would he treat people? How would he love people? Like, without Jesus, we would all be asking that. We would all be wanting to know that. But with Jesus, we have that answer. Like, we know what that looks like for God to be in flesh and to love other people and to treat other people and the things that he cared about. But notice... Here in our text, 
It's a little bit different. Oh, button again. In our text, it's a little bit different. Notice verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. I know this may be something small, but as I studied through 1 John, this jumped off the pages to me. It may, and I read it multiple times because it threw me for a loop. And I was like, ah, am I reading that? Because I always had, you know, like Jesus is the one where we can understand and we can come to know God. But in 1 John, we get a glimpse into something a little bit different. And this phrase um, that we see, uh, his love completed, it occurs multiple times in John. Uh, love perfected or love completed, depending on uh, the English that you're using there. In chapter 2, verse 5, it says, when they obey his word, that his love is completed in them. And then after our text in, in 1 John chapter 4, 17 and 18, it kind of mentions it twice in those two verses. And it's saying, when they can face the day of judgment without fear. And it's talking about love versus fear, that when they can do that, his believers, that his love has been perfected or completed in him. And the one that we're looking at tonight here, it's going to be our focal point, is here in, in chapter 4, uh, verse 12. And it says, love is perfected. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Notice what surrounds that phrase, no one has ever seen God. Right before it and right after it, it talks about our love for one another. Right before it and right after that, you get, you get that phrase. And to me, this kind of blew my mind. Maybe this is like, oh, Brian, this is elementary. Obviously, I knew this. But I just was empowered by this and encouraged by this. And like in wonder of this is God saying our love for one another makes God known to those around us and to each other. That obviously you have Christ who did that. But now that Christ is back at the right hand of God, now his people, when we love one another, God abides, or you could say God lives within us as a group, as his people. That God, yes, he's, he's invisible, but yet when you abide and when you love one another, God abides in you. That's amazing to me. And a couple weeks ago, I was actually thinking, uh, which I think is good as a parent about my daughter, and I was like, how can I get her uh, to understand God more? Like, how can I get her to, to realize that, like, God loves her and this is what God's about and all these different things? And I realized something that week. And I realized, like, I can't use this person's name because they, like, threatened us never to, like, publicly say who did this. But we were having a, uh, people bring us food every once in a while because they're like, you have a baby. We, we know how it's hard uh, to have a baby, and it was hard to say yes to that because we were like, no, we're good now. You know, like the food train's over, and they're like, no, we still want to like love and support you, show you love. Like, this is something we want to do. And we are like, okay, this is, this is nice. Thank you so much for this. But I realized with Ava that us doing that, and then I realized in the same week then Allison cooked food. I, I really have no role in this, but Allison cooked food for somebody else who was a, a caretaker for their spouse that was having, having some health issues. And that same week, someone brought us food and we took food to somebody else. And that's a regular occurrence. Um, or we, Ava would write a card to somebody that was like a widow and we encouraged her to do that. And I realized this is the best window into who God is. Like we're, we're hesitant sometimes to receive help from one another. Like, cause we're like, no, no, we're good. Like, like, there's other people that may need help. But I realized as a parent that in that moment, like, I could tell it was starting to click with Ava when I'm like, yes, this is what it is to be a part of God's people. Like, 
People love you. People care about you. And they're doing this because they love God. And we take food to somebody else because God loves us and we want to pass that love to somebody else. And that's beautiful. Like, that's amazing. Like, when you stop and you think about the church and God's design of the church, I would debate anybody that it is one of the most beautiful things on earth that we get to witness when done right. Like, very disappointing when done wrong. But when done right, it is one of the most amazing things on earth to see a group of people of different backgrounds and different talents and interests and all those things have a deep love for one another because of Christ. And you can go anywhere in the world and come across other believers and have this like intimate connection with them because of your faith in Jesus Christ. And God's saying, when we do that, he lives in us and we're able to see who God is. My, you're probably wondering this as well because I get asked this question all the time. My role now is discipleship and everybody's like, okay, what? What does that mean? Like, you just make up a title. But with discipleship, I get to focus on guests, uh, new members, and outreach. Uh, so I get to experience and interact with a, a lot of different people and see how different people in our congregation are able to bring people to Jesus. And I will tell you this, that if you took all the smartest people about Scripture and put them on one side of the room, and you put all those that love people the deepest and put them on the other side of the room, it is hands down this group over here that bring more people to Christ. Hands down. Not that you don't need knowledge, but for reaching people and communicating who God is, it's that showing them that love and that value in them, even if they're a stranger and even if you don't even know them at all. And that's the beauty of the church. Let's look, look at a couple more passages here. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 through 10, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At the core of our responsibility is to proclaim who Jesus is, that we are his people, that we have a purpose, that we have received mercy. And the best way for us to do that is through loving one another. In John chapter 13, 34 and 35, it says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. For a while, I struggled with this passage. Like, I probably not believe it is a strong word, but um, I wrestled with it. Because to me, I would say, well, the best way for people to know that I'm a believer of God, surely it's not by loving one another. Like, and I just, like, I wrestled with that, like, growing up. Like, surely, like, the first time I heard this, like, that's not true. Like, we would not think that, like, our best means of, like, evangelism and reaching other people is not our love for one another. But I think at the heart of what this verse is saying is that, that the world will take notice that there is a group of people that love one another that is so radical that they're going to be like, hey, that does not make sense to me. Like, that has to be something that's from God. And as we get to jump into this a little bit more, I want you to just hold on to that because it's so important when we think, okay, how are we going to function as a church? In 1 John chapter 4, 19 through 20, uh, let me ask this question actually before we read this. What does it look like to love people? Like hopefully we've established a little bit like, hey, like our concepts of love, how we love people may not line up exactly what God looks like. But what does it look like for God's love to be perfected um, 
among us? Like, what does that look like to us? In 1 John chapter 19, verse 20, it says, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not, or who he has not seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. The first thing I see here, which sounds elementary, but it's important, is we have to recognize God's love first. I know that sounds simple, but I can tell you if I analyze my life of the times that I am very successful in loving other people and times where I'm good at resisting temptation, it is because I'm more in tune with God's love for me. It is the times that I forget about God's love and I get distracted by God's love that I'm more likely to make bad choices. I'm more, more likely to not value people. I'm more likely to be short with people because I forget God's love. The second part of this is you can't hate your brother. And you're like, okay, I probably don't hate anybody, but think about it for a minute. There's a good chance there may be somebody in this room that you're still holding on to stuff about, that you have negative feelings to, and you, ha- you are, are carrying this burden. And I would say Jesus takes this, uh, he doesn't take it lightly. If you think of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 23 through 24, he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Wow. Like, when I read through that the first time, I was like, whoa, that seems weird. Like, worship's very important. Like, why would I leave worship to go be reconciled? Like, wait, I have an excuse for skipping worship? Yeah, that's what it sounds like. If you need to be reconciled to, you, to your brother, like, it's okay if you skip worship to go do that. That's, that's how much value Jesus is placing on this. Like, this is that important that... You don't let those things linger. You don't let those things go on. So if we want to be a community of people that love one another like God loves one another, I see First John's telling us once we need to remember God's love. Number two, we cannot hate our brothers. And the next, First John chapter 3, 16 and 18, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone, let's pause there for a moment. What do you see when you read that verse? You don't have to answer out loud. What one word jumps out to you? To me, it's sacrifice. That's tough. I like to love people in convenience, like if I'm honest. Like, sacrifice is hard. Like, there are people I will sacrifice for, and there are situations I will sacrifice, but normally if I'm defining love in my terms, it is doing something good that benefits somebody that's convenient for me. I try to avoid sacrifice sometimes. Let me read something to you uh, about the early church. It says, they love one, this is second century, they love one another, they do not overlook the widow, and they save the orphan. The one who has ministers ungrudgingly to the one who does not have. When they see strangers, they take him under their own roof and rejoice over him as a true brother. For they do not call themselves brothers according to the flesh, but according to the soul. And whenever they see one of their poor has died, each one of them, according to his ability, contributes ungrudgingly, and they bury him. And if they hear that some are condemned or imprisoned on the count of the name of the Lord, they contribute to those condemned and send to them what they need. And if it is possible, redeem them. And if there is any that is a slave or a poor man, they fast two to three days. And what they are going to set before themselves, they send to them, considering themselves to give good cheer, even as they were called to good cheer." Wow. Is that like the five-minute bell? Or is that like a fancy bell? Is anybody else hearing that? Like, 
Okay, maybe a phone. Okay. Uh, I was like, you guys have changed stuff since I left. All right. <laughs> All right. Um, sorry to get distracted by that, but, um, but on a serious note, what a description of sacrifice. Of saying, I know somebody is poor and I'm going to skip multiple meals to give them food. Not that I have abundance of money sitting over here that I'm going to give to them. No, it's I'm giving up something so that they can be blessed. Wow, that's, that's different, if I'm being honest with myself, than how I normally do it, how I normally understand love. Here's another quote. It says, By loving you will be an imitator of God's kindness, and do not marvel that a human being is able to be an imitator of God, one who is able is willing to be beautiful to me, that if we're willing and if we do it right, that people can see God through us. And it takes sacrifice. It's not easy to do, but my challenge to you is what sacrificial thing are you doing for your church family? Yes, that goes back to God, but for one another. What are we doing to sacrifice for one another? Because if we're honest about ourselves, when we're comparing God's love to our our love, to me, that is the biggest difference between the two, is that one word, sacrifice. Okay, there's the actual bell, right? <laughs> is this like a joke in my camera? Like, oh, that's the biggest word, is sacrifice. So, what does this look like? I have two things that I'll try to get to real quick. The first one is having difficult conversations. Uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brothers, if any is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. I think a lot of times we put difficult conversations in the category of elders and ministers, but if you read the New Testament text, and they, they are included in that in other passages, but stuff like this, and in James 5, 19 through 20, he's speaking to everybody. Like, we all have a responsibility that if somebody is hurting within our family, it is on us to go to them in a, in a spirit of gentleness, like with respect, but it's on us to go to them and have that difficult conversation. One thing that I would encourage you to do is make a list this week of things that you feel like if there's anybody that you love that they don't believe in or maybe that they're not doing in their lives, that you will go to that person. Uh, make a list of, of what that may be. Like it may be, hey, if this person doesn't believe that, that we can trust scripture, I'm going to have that conversation with them. Or maybe they believe, hey, Jesus isn't the only one that we can have salvation. You make your own list, but go through and make a list of, hey, if I have somebody in my life that I know falls into one of these categories that I think this is important enough to make that awkward conversation that I'm going to go do it. Because I think if not, and for me, it's easy just to like skip over those or push them off or to not think, okay, like this is, I need to put my head in here and have this conversation Make a list and say, you know what, I care enough about this person that if somebody falls into one of these categories, like I'm going to go to that person out of love and not post it on Facebook, but answer yourself the question. If somebody came to you and said, hey, Brandon, I think you don't fully understand God's word. I think you're doing something wrong. Um, what would that look like for you to be receptive of that conversation? And whatever that is, try to mirror that. And I'll tell you what, if somebody came to me like, I'd be defensive. Like, I would have to really know that they loved me and that they cared about me for me to be willing to have a conversation about my soul and what I believe and what I practice about my faith. So keep that in mind. But as a church, I think that's high on our list. The second one 
is hospitality. Um, and I'm going to use the more modern word of hospitality. Like if you look at hospitality in the Old Testament, it's more being a uh, lover to some, uh, like a stranger. But I'm thinking more hospitality how we use it today. And that's opening up your lives, opening up your homes, opening up your schedules to other people. I think if you're not intimately connected to other Christians, like on a weekly basis, you're probably doing it wrong. Like when I go to Acts chapter 2 from the very beginning of how the church functions, they have this intimacy with one another, that they're in one another's lives, that they're sharing their faith, that they, they have accountability with one another. And we see that being carried all the way through. If you study early church history, you see the church doing those exact same things. Like all the way through, we're supposed to have that intimate relationship with one another. So my challenge to you, if like fellowship is not a core element of like your faith and your practice, make time for that. Because that's what it looks like to love one another. How can we really love one another if we only show up for worship and we worship with one another in a large auditorium and then we leave and we never see one another again that week? That's not, that's not the love that they practice. It's not the love that God has for us and it doesn't give us the opportunity to even love one another like we should and like we need. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 through 47, back on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says, if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? To me, this is probably one of the major issues that we have in the church today. It's hard for us, especially if you've been to a congregation for a while. You have your social setting, like you have your routine, and it's hard to be aware of other people. Um, and the thing I say often is being unloving and being unaware equals the same result um, to that individual. Like, uh, we had somebody, when I first moved there, uh, come and visit, and they left a, a card, which I was excited about, only to then find out that on their card they said, this was the most unloving church I've ever been to. Like, that was fun to read in the elders' meeting. But uh, it was also good because it springboarded a lot of things where we said, hey, like, I, I also realized where they were sitting in the auditorium. But anyways, but <laughs> that's another story. But where we realized, hey, we want everybody that enters our church to have a similar experience. It doesn't matter where they sit or who they interact with. And that individual, I got them to try it again and, and change their mind. But like to us, how it blows my mind that people enter our church building and they don't feel loved. I shared this last night with another congregation that we had an individual. I'll wrap it up right here. We had an individual that came to our congregation. He was just going down the street. We were the seventh church he came to. And we were the first one that he said that he felt like anybody showed him any attention or love the seventh church of just hopping down the street. So my challenge to you is when people walk through those doors, will they experience God when they're here to worship him, when they're here to know him? When people look at your congregation and look at you and your friends and who you interact with, will they see God? Because the most amazing thing to me is that Christ did it, and now he gives that responsibility to us as his people, that even though he's invisible, that we get to complete his love and he can live within us for our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters here, how much they mean to Allison and I, how much they've encouraged us and built us up in our faith. Father, I pray that they will embrace what we looked at tonight in your scripture, that they will realize that they play a role in your story and in your mission here in Madison to be able to share your love, to be able to share your gospel, and it's, it's directly tied to the way that they treat one another and the way that they love one another and the way that they love the stranger who walks in uh, each week. Father, we thank you so much for your love, even though we don't fully understand it. Uh, we know and we look forward to one day uh, embracing it all the more. We offer us pray in your son's name. Amen.